right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, LifePoint family. Welcome back. Uh, glad to have you here uh, with us. Uh, guests, welcome. If it's your first time here at LifePoint, my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here. I hope someone's had a chance to greet you this morning. Uh, if not, we'd love to be able to connect with you before you leave. One day, wait, way to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, one way to do that digitally, uh, there are some QR codes in front of you. Uh, just take your smartphone, you've got full permission to pull that out, point it at that QR code there on the chairs in front of you, and that'll take you to a resource we've developed for you. Uh, if you're new, it's called lpguest.com. You can just type that into a web, web browser as well if you want, but lpguest.com has the message notes for this morning, uh, a bunch of helpful information there, everything you need to sort of orient yourself uh, this morning. But if you wouldn't mind uh, taking a moment to fill out the guest information card that's there as well, that takes about 90 seconds to do. Uh, you can choose some ministries that are listed there, choose one of those you're passionate about, and we'll donate $5 in your honor. No strings attached, just our way of saying thanks so much for being with us uh, this morning. Um, to the LifePoint family, I want to say a big thank you. Uh, so last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and uh, we had just a phenomenal morning across all of our campuses as our Marion campus launched and Plain City's a few weeks old now, or about a month old now. And, uh, and here specifically, I just want to say thank you for, for all of those who shifted away from the 9.30 or 11 a.m. to come to our 8 a.m. service. We had three services last Sunday. We had almost as many people come to the 8 a.m. as the other two services. So uh, well done, right? Give yourself a hand. Thank you so much, right, for... All of those who came to the 8 a.m. to make room for other folks, right? Thinking missionally. Uh, I'm sure Fresh Start uh, Cafe and Bakery Breakfast helped in that, and I'm grateful for that. They did a wonderful job, but thank you for thinking about others and thinking about making room and space for folks as people invited folks to be here. And if you're back from Easter Sunday, if last Sunday was your first Sunday here, man, we're thrilled to have you here back with us. We are kicking off. It's a great time to be with us. We're kicking off a brand new series uh, this week that's going to take actually about 17 weeks. So we're going to be going through the whole summer, uh, going through the gospel of Luke uh, together. And this series, we're calling it Labels. And uh, what we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about the gospel of Luke, but we're going to highlight something we see throughout the gospel of Luke. And that is that Jesus so often uh, comes to people who have been in some ways labeled by the culture around them. And if you think about this, you maybe hear that term and think, that's still what we do today, right? You get into as early as uh, elementary and middle school, right? You get labeled, right? You're the, the jock, right? The athletic person or the artist or the nerd or the, uh, the gifted, right? Whatever it may be, you get put in these categories and labels. And um, middle schoolers, I hate to tell you, that doesn't really go away in the sense that you get older and then they, the culture still tries to push sort of new labels, right? You're, you're progressive, you're conservative, you're upper class, you're lower class, you're this, you're that. And there's this temptation, possibility of maybe identifying yourself by those labels. And the big idea we're going to talk about throughout the series is that the gospel calls us to a life above the labels. If anything, the only label we really should wear is that of Christ follower. But it's this life above the labels to say, hey, that's what people have said about you, what culture says about you, sometimes what you say about you, that's not what defines you. It's what Christ says about you. It's what the scriptures say about you. And, and we look in the gospel of Luke and we see Jesus coming to these people who culture is labeled tax collector, sinner, marginalized by society, unclean, unrighteous. And Jesus comes to them and says, look, you, you come follow me. You come follow me. 
Now, before we jump in, we're going to be in Luke 1 this morning, but before we, before we jump in, I want to explain and highlight something I'm very, very excited about, something we're going to do sort of throughout the this, this series. So in the second five or six, six weeks of the series, we're going to highlight Luke 10 2 and pray through that together as a church, that the Lord would raise up laborers for the harvest, that the harvest is plentiful, right? There are people who are ready to hear the gospel, but God, we need you to raise up people who are willing to take the gospel to those people. We're going to pray through that in the second or the last five or six weeks, the third five or six weeks, we're going to focus a lot on, hey, go share with someone. We've prayed for this, right? Who is your one? Who's that person in your life that you're going and you're praying for and saying, Lord, give me an opportunity to share Christ with this person, with my classmate, my teammate, my family member, my neighbor, the coworker. But here in the first five or six weeks. We're going to talk about it this Sunday. We're going to talk about it next Sunday. And then we're going to launch it on Monday, May 2nd. I'm thrilled about this. We're going to challenge everyone, all right? Everybody here, the whole church, to read through the gospel of Luke together through the month of May, which means you'll finish it by the end of May. You'll be way ahead of the curve, right? You'll know where we're heading over the next 17 weeks. But the reason for this, so many times I've sat with folks and, and sometimes it's new believers, but oftentimes it's people who, like, they've been in church their whole life. And when I ask the question, have you, ha- do you have a daily habit of reading God's Word? It's like, no. And maybe I've tried, maybe you've tried, right? And I, I got into it and, and I just didn't understand it. And, and so we want to do what we can as a church to say, hey, let's try to change that. Let's develop a habit of reading the Word together. And so there are two ways that you can approach this, right? One physical version, one digital version, okay? So here's the physical version. We've bought a bunch of these, all right? It's the Jesus Bible Journal. This is the Gospel of Luke, right? You'll see it's got all the books of the Bible highlighted, but then the one highlighted here is what this is. So it's the Gospel of Luke. These are sitting at the bistro tables on the back on your way out. They're also out at Guest Central. And if you're like, I need a physical Bible to read, it's got some pages next to it. So here's the text and here's a space just for you to write notes. Right? The New International Version is a great version, easy to read and understand, and this is for you. All right? So you grab one of these today. Now, if you're like, I will grab it and immediately throw it in the back of my car and never see it again. Well, then don't grab one. Right? But if you are not promising to finish, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish. No, no, we bought this for you. Okay? You're promising to try. You're promising to try. And particularly if you don't have a Bible reading habit on a daily basis. I was just talking to someone this morning who said, hey, thank you for emphasizing getting in the Word of God. She said, you always told me that and I, and I didn't listen. Uh, I was like, thank you for your honesty, right? And she was like, but when I finally did, my life changed. The Word of God changed my life. God, through His Word, is shaping me differently. We want to see you get into the Word of God. So you can do it. Physical Bible. You're like, I'm not sure I'll finish. No, no, just grab one. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. And then here's the, the digital version. So I'm going to throw up a QR code right here. Um, the YouVersion Bible app, there's a study called Luke Explained, and you can go to this QR code. You can actually point your phone at this right now. If you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, it's going to prompt you to download the YouVersion Bible app. It's a free account. You'll have to give like an email and your name. That's pretty standard for every, but the YouVersion Bible app is very, very, very well known. Like literally millions of people around the globe have the YouVersion Bible app. So you're like, is it safe? They've done a great job. All right. So you can, if you already have the YouVersion Bible app, then it's just going to take you directly to that Luke Explained study. And you don't have to start yet. It's just reading a chapter a day, right? We're going to start on Monday, May 2nd. By the way, this QR code is also out at Guest Central along with these books. And if you need help downloading that, they can help you out. We can help you out at Guest Central, all right? So 
whichever version, if you're like, I can do this digitally, you can share that with friends, you can do it together, you can do it with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends or with a teammate or classmate. Um, if you do it this way, obviously you can share that with someone else as well, but easy to do that digitally. So pick your way of doing it. And on Monday, May 2nd, we're going to start together as a church. Here's, what, here's how this works. There are 24 chapters in Luke. If you read a chapter a day, starting May 2nd, you take Sundays off as we gather here. By the end of May, on Sunday, May 29th, we'll stand up here and we'll celebrate together like you finished, right? 24 chapters, chapter a day, six times a week. The goal, though, is not to get to May 29th and say, I did it, and now I will never read the Bible again, right? The goal is to get to the end of it. And as much as I want you to finish the Gospel of Luke, I want you to develop a habit of daily being in God's Word for yourself, okay? Daily being in the Word of God for yourself. You encounter the Lord through that. So by the end, you can, you finish, great. Go on to Acts, the book of Acts. That's like Luke part two. He wrote both of them, right? Go into other Gospels. Go into the New Testament letters. Go to the Old Testament if you feel comfortable navigating your way through. Our goal is to get you to read the Word of God for yourself. All right, so we're all gonna do that. I'll share a little bit more about that next Sunday. We've got a hashtag that'll go along with that where we can share things on social media with each other to encourage one another, but we'll talk about that more next Sunday. What I want you to know this morning is either grab one of these or download the YouVersion Bible app, all right? Now, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 1, or if you're on YouVersion, great, go to Luke 1. Let me give you the background here. We're gonna read all the way down to verse 25, but Luke is a doctor, right? So Luke was a doctor. Uh, very, very well educated. His Greek, commentators tell us that he has a mastery over the Greek language. So some of the guys who wrote Gospels and New Testament letters, you're like, man, this is just kind of everyday Joe, right? Luke, pretty highly educated. Some say like his opening lines actually approach that of like classical Greek. So he's this highly educated physician who was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. Right? And that's where we think probably he heard a lot of these stories. And in the early years of Christianity, they lived in an oral culture. These stories are being passed along of what Jesus did. And so pretty, very early in the process, people sat down to start saying, we need to chronicle this. We need to write down. We need to get in writing everything that's happened here. So listen to the first four verses because Luke's the only one who actually gives us some of the four gospels. Luke's the only one who says, I'm going to give you a little bit of an insight into how this all happened how we wrote this stuff down. This is what he says. Many have undertaken, verse one, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, right? She's so like, everybody's talking about this. What happened in Jerusalem? What happened in Judea with Jesus? He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us. That's actually a technical term there, handed down. This oral tradition handed down to us from, from who? Not Centuries later, okay, this is only years after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven. He says, from those who were eyewitnesses, from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They saw it, they told us. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He's writing it, we think to this guy named Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, look at that, verse four, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I just want to comment on that before we go into verse five, all right? I think sometimes um, Christianity gets this rap for being like 
anti-intellectual, right? We don't like questions. You just, just don't ask questions. Just believe, right? Just have faith. Did you hear what Paul just said or what Luke just said? He's like, I'm writing to you. Hey, the eyewitnesses saw it. Then they told stories about it and told everybody about it. And now there's a group of us, and he says, I myself have investigated. I went through and asked everybody about this, and I've compiled it all, and I've put it in a history so that you might have certainty about the things that you've been taught. So two things with that, right? One, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, and maybe this is part of what keeps you from, like, how do I know the Bible is accurate? How do I know that's true? I just want you to know you're welcome to ask those questions. Right? So if you're here and you're a believer and you got someone in your family or friend who's like, what about this? And how does this work? And you're like, just have faith, right? I understand. And look, if you're a skeptic, at some point in time, you are going to have to come to the place where you say, do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Right? That the God of the universe, if he exists, raised Jesus, his son, from the grave, and I'm putting my faith in him. But faith is not like, I just believe stuff with no evidence or facts. That's not what faith is. Faith is trusting the Lord wholly and fully, without reservation. I believe that what you've said you've done, Jesus, you are who say you are, that the word of God is true. And yes, there are times as you study and as I look at, it's like, man, the evidence I see right now seems to contradict what the Lord has said. And when that happens, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that more evidence is going to surface. I'm going to withhold judgment here and trust you. But it doesn't mean having faith in the Lord, being a follower of Jesus does not mean you're like, yeah, I know none of this makes sense, but I just have faith. I just believe God's good. Why? I don't know. That's not how these folks approach it. Not how the New Testament writers approach it. Luke's like, look, I want you to know with certainty this happened. People saw it. The Apostle Paul in his letters is like, look, guys, Jesus rose from the grave. He appeared first to the ladies, then to the disciples, and then to more than 500 others. He writes that in one of his letters. And he tells the people he's writing to, he's like, by the way, most of those are still alive. If you'd like to go talk to them, you can. So questions are invited, even encouraged. And if you're here and you are a skeptic, man, ask those questions. There's good evidence for the resurrection of the Son of God. And yes, you're going to have to come to a time, right, where you say, well, I can't prove all of it. Yeah, there is a, do, do you trust him? Do you believe he is who he says he is? But you can ask those questions. And for those of us who are believers, hopefully you're encouraged by this, that you see that the Word of God, the Bible, we believe it's at, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it didn't just float out of the sky one day, right? Like, oh, look, a book. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but crafted by people who care deeply about seeing what God did, creating those, telling the story, and handing it down so that we could have certainty about who God is and what He's done. I think that should give us confidence and encouragement as believers in Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Just going to pause there for a moment, right? I recognize some of us, you read that and you just sort of move on. Others, you read that and this is your experience right now. We've got a number of couples right now walking through infertility, dealing with not being able to have kids. And I know that's so hard. I have not personally experienced that. I just know from talking with folks 
how painful that is. In their culture, right, it would bring a lot of shame and disgrace. I know that in our culture, it still brings a lot of pain and hurt and heartache. And I had, to be honest, I had a, a long section sort of written up and then thought, no, I don't think that's the, I don't want to rush that at all. That's probably for another day. But one thing I do want you to notice, right? Notice that it said Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless before the Lord. It's not like they did something wrong. It wasn't a sign of divine disfavor in their life. In fact, right, they are favored by the Lord. And the Lord in his sovereign plan walks them through decades of infertility and not being able to have kids. But that doesn't mean he's not good and it doesn't mean he doesn't love them and it doesn't mean they've done something wrong. In fact, it says they were blameless and righteous before the Lord. And the Lord is walking them, walking them through this. Now it goes on in verse 8. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty... And he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, you, may, you and I may hear that and just, okay, this is an indication like, okay, God's about to do something very significant here, all right? Chosen by lot, when you see that in the scriptures, that's not like, hey, it just randomly happened. They're always like, hey, God's even governing the dice, right? And God, there are about 18,000 priests who serve. So being chosen as the one guy who gets to go in to the holy place and burn incense at the altar, that was for most priests like a once in a lifetime thing. Zechariah has been serving probably for decades. And like the one time, right? He gets chosen to go in and pray. Something's about to happen. So pay attention. Verse 10, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now that's the standard reaction to angels in the scriptures, right? You're like, one, as far as I understand, he's supposed to be the only guy in there. That alone would creep you out, right? Like you're burning incense and all of a sudden someone else is right there, but it's also an angel. It's Gabriel himself, and so he's gripped with fear, and he looks, and he's trying to register what's going on. And verse 13 says this, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many people, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's a reference to an Old Testament prophet. There are two prophecies, hundreds of years old, being referenced right now, one from Isaiah and one from Malachi, okay? This is, a, this is a very specific, the reason this child is being born is there's a very specific purpose for what he's going to do. He is the fulfillment of things that have started all the way back in the garden. God's redemptive plan that started all the way back at Genesis 1. The next phase of what's happening here is now being commenced. And Gabriel's telling that to Zechariah, your son, he says, he's going to bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, prepared for the coming of Jesus. Now, Zechariah's response to this, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in, in years. Right? It's a 
reasonable question in the sense that he's like, look, I'm like 70 or 80, right? My wife is that you do know how, you know, this sort of works. And look at the angel's response. This honestly, when I read it, like, it's like awesome and scary sort of all at the same time. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to you to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for, for me, she said, and the days, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. There are three things I want to cover here, right, with the rest of our time. Two questions that I want us to ask and one comment, right? Two questions and one comment. Here's the first question. Do we trust God, his purposes, and here's the real kicker, right, his timing. Do we trust God? Do we trust his purposes? And do we trust his timing? Now, why do I say that? Why that question out of that text? Here's what what strikes me, right? So you got to zoom out a little bit. When you read Luke 1, you're like, why is he telling us about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist? And you zoom out and you realize it's been 400 years, a little over 400 years actually, since God has spoken to the people of Israel, right? So the time between last prophet who spoke was Malachi, And Malachi prophesied sometime in like 430 BC. And and it's now 400 some years later. And that period of time is sometimes called the silent period where the people of Israel recognize God's not speaking to us the way that he once did. Not that he's not doing anything, but he is not speaking to us. and, And there are no more prophets. And for the majority of that time, they're under foreign domination the nation of Israel. They've been exiled and they got to go back, but they're still under Greek rule and then eventually Roman rule. I mean, think about this, right? So what was happening in our national history 400 years ago, right? Plymouth Rock, right? The the Mayflower, right? Like that's what was going on here. Like that's, can you imagine someone saying something back then and being like, this is going to happen. And then here we are in 2022 going, I haven't really heard anything else about this, right? Is it really going to happen? Like God just seems to have gone silent. Think about how many generations of Israelites that would be. For 400, you have these prophecies and actually it's longer than that, right? So 700 years before is Isaiah saying, hey, someone's gonna come in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Then Malachi's like, someone's gonna come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah's gonna return and he's gonna prepare the people and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the children to their fathers. And they're like, that's awesome. So they're waiting on Messiah. They've been told Messiah's coming. They're waiting for the redemption of Israel. And then 400 plus years goes by and God seemingly says nothing. How many generations, how many teenage Israelites are like, mom, dad, I mean, you, you tell us Yahweh loves us. You tell us God is for us. You tell us about what he did back in the Exodus. That was a long time ago. Where is he now? How many generations of skeptics rose up, right? I, you know, God doesn't see I know he made all these promises back then. and He worked really, really in cool ways back then, but not now. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years, 
God breaks the silence and speaks again in this unique way and tells Zechariah all these promises, right? John the Baptist's birth isn't just about, hey, a baby's going to be born. It's all of these promises that I've made the people of Israel, I've not forgotten. (laughs) And it's time. It's time to fulfill those. The fulfillment of these things is coming now. And I think about that. It's not just the uh, it's not just the corporate waiting of Israel, right? So like Israel corporately as a body, as a, as a nation has waited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> Lord, when are you going to redeem us? When are you going to save us? There's also the personal waiting, right? You got Zechariah and Elizabeth waiting for not hundreds of years, but tens of years, decades. They want to have a child. The Lord walks them through this process. And it's so interesting to me that the angel, <laughs> Gabriel looks at Zechariah and he's like, your prayer has been heard. And commentators differ a little bit on like, what's he praying in that moment? Is he praying for the redemption of Israel, for the Savior to come? Like certainly the people of Israel prayed that. Was he praying specifically that they could have a baby? To be honest, I read it and like his response seems to indicate he doesn't exactly expect that to happen. And so I wonder even like, how many years has it been since he prayed that? And, And here's my point in that, right? Whether he prayed it then or later, I think the point remains, you and I, right, we live in a culture that's just... Instant, 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 right? We don't wait for hardly anything. And so we pray stuff. And if you're anything like me, right, sometimes you pray and you're like, okay, God didn't do anything right now. And then maybe tomorrow goes by and you're like, I still haven't heard from the Lord. So we just move on with life. (laughs) We're like, okay, I guess God didn't answer it. And God just doesn't operate that way. He's so different than us. And God doesn't forget those things. And he hears those prayers. And yes, he answers yes sometimes, no sometimes. And this is really important. When God says no, like God's not being mean. God's a really good father. And when he says no to us in prayer, it's not because he's saying like, hey, I don't love you. or I don't. It's no, I, like I have something else for you. And you maybe, you maybe think you know what you need, and, and here's what you want, but I want to give you what you actually need. Uh, so I reference my kids a lot because I just, I mean, Lord, I feel like is teaching me a lot in parenting, right? If you've been through parenting, you know, like God does teach you a lot. And like my kids sometimes will ask, hey, we're hungry. Their version of that is like chocolate and jelly beans, right? Like that's what we want. If I let them, they would eat that for like every meal. I just said, And so what we do is we answer that as parents with, no, here's what you actually need. This is what you want, but here's what you actually need right now. And so sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is not yet. And there's a waiting period. And the time goes by. And this is where it gets so hard, right? Like, oh, but Lord, I mean, I prayed this and I prayed it over and over and over and over. Whatever the circumstance may be, where are you, God? God, why do you feel so silent? Why do you seem so distant? And we're reminded all throughout Scripture, God just doesn't operate the way that we do, and his timing is different than ours. In fact, the Apostle Peter once wrote to the church, and some people were beginning to question. He, he, he even says this. He says, look, in the last days, scoffers are going to arise, people who are just like, Jesus isn't coming back. Everything's been going on the same way since the beginning, and I mean, Heck, as the church, right? We've been waiting 2,000 years, and you're like, is he coming back? And this is what the Apostle Peter says, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. Just listen. I don't have it on the screens. Just listen for a moment. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I have no idea when Jesus is going to come back. If he tarries for another thousand years, our job is to stay focused, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to live in anticipation of his return, and trust the Lord, his purposes, and his timing. But here's the hard part, right? The second question is really just a restatement of the first in some ways. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? And not just like cosmically in the return of Jesus, but in every situation of life, as you suffer, as you grieve, as you hope, as you seek, as you ask, as you hurt, as you are joyful, in every season, are you willing to wait on the Lord and say, Lord, I know this is what I want, but I trust you that you know what I really need. And I trust you that you're a really good father and that every good gift comes from you. And if your timing looks different than my timing, rather than throwing up my hands and saying, well, then you must not love me. Rather, I'm willing to lean in and say, Lord, you must have a different plan here. And I trust you that you're good and that you have my best in mind. Psalm, when reading through the Psalm, Psalm 130 says this, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Out of the depths, right? This isn't like a, everything's great. Most of the Psalms, actually, this is what strikes me about reading the Psalms, is so often the circumstances are not good. And it's no surprise to me that the hymn book of the Bible does not come just out of happy circumstances, but out of hurt and pain and suffering and heartache. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And then it goes on in verse 5 and says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Not in my circumstance. In his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. Listen to this. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Have you ever stayed up all night just to see the sunrise? Done it once, right? I could not wait for the sun to come up, right? It was just like, oh, please, mercifully end this, right? Like my buddy and I just stand there, like came up. I was like, oh, that's beautiful. Bed, right? I mean, it's straight. Like, oh, please. It's just like if you stay, if you, if you deal with lack of sleep or insomnia, you know, like the, the night feels eternally long. And it says, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So I wait for you, Lord. Like, God, I know you're going to show up. I know you're good. My hope is in your word. I don't care what I see around me. I don't care how I feel right now. I care, but I'm not going to let, I'm not going to be dictated to by my feelings. I'm going to put my hope in you. You are good. You came. You rose. You conquered the grave. You showed your love for me in Christ. Your promises is true. You promised the forgiveness of my sin and eternal life forever. You, God, I will wait on you. I will trust in you, and I will not be dictated to by my temporary feelings or circumstances. I'll stand on the rock, the cornerstone that is Christ, the anchor for my soul that anchors me in the joyous moments and reminds me not to get too enamored with the gifts that God gives, right? It's not about that. It's about the giver. 
and that anchors me in the dark moments where I'm tempted to drift away from him, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And it is the cornerstone, my anchor within the veil that says, no, 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 I will hope despite what I see, despite the valley I'm in, I know that I have a great shepherd who leads me even in the valley of the shadow of death. I will wait upon the Lord. Some things simply can't be microwaved. I was talking about that with my brother this past week and he and I were just reflecting on, we live in an instant culture, instant messaging, right? Instant email, instant food. (laughs) You just want it, right? Hit a button, order it, it's delivered to you 10 minutes later and what happens, a lot of those things are good, don't get me wrong. Like I'm grateful that when I wanna communicate with someone who's not here, I don't have to write a letter, right? You know, put an envelope, seal it. Like it's nice, but it's sometimes like better, hi, right? So I'm appreciative of that, grateful for it. But one of the unintended consequences, I think, is that we begin to be conditioned to think everything is instant. Everything can be sped up. Marriage, relationships, parenting, sanctification, spiritual growth, just microwave it all. Even in 2022, you cannot speed up certain things. Not God's activity, not his purposes. Marriage remains hard, parenting is hard, your spiritual growth, single, old, young, whatever. Your growth in the Lord, that's the long game. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't instant that, you can't microwave that. It takes perseverance. And in so many ways, our culture shapes us to think, well, everything is instant, right? We just speed up the process. And sometimes there is no fast track. Are we willing to wait on the Lord? Here's the last thing that I'll comment on and then we'll be done. Comment. So there's this moment, right, where Zechariah speaks to Gabriel and he questions, right? Like, how's this really going to, how do I know that's going to happen, right? And Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. I, I stand in the presence of God, right? That should be enough. But so, so what caught me the first time when I read it is I, I saw only the discipline, right? It's a little bit my personality. I, I just saw like, oh, he got in trouble, right? And the, ga- the angel's like, you're not going to be able to speak. One of the commentators pointed out, hey, that's, yes, there's a discipline aspect to that. Like you didn't believe Zechariah, but you notice it's actually also what Zechariah asked for. He said, how will I know? Can I have a sign that will show me this is really going to happen? And for the next nine months, he can't talk, which is a daily reminder, this really happened. And then his wife's getting pregnant, like, that's a daily reminder. This is really happening. And then the moment that John is born, Zechariah receives his speech back. And you know what he does? He doesn't explain, say a bunch of bitter, like a bunch of bitter thing. I can't believe God didn't let me speak for nine months. This is ridiculous, right? Like he's not bitter. His faith is grown. He praises them. He prophesies over his son. He says, right, this boy... <laughs> has been raised up to lead many back to the Lord. Even, so here's the point, even the discipline of God is always for our good. Even the discipline of God, even the times where God is correcting you and rebuking you lovingly, hey, that was wrong, right? You're dealing with the, you, you got yourself, you put yourself in this. You're under the hand of discipline. Never is God doing that simply to vent his anger. You're his child his son or his daughter, and he's a perfectly, perfect heavenly father. Now, as I say that, I recognize some of us had fathers or parents or guardians, right, who like 
vented their anger. Their discipline wasn't for your good as much as it was to, I just angry. The father is not like that. His discipline is always looking at you going, this is for your good, to help you trust me more, to see more of me, for your spiritual growth, for your joy in me. Even when he disciplines, it's for our good. And so Zechariah is unable to speak for nine months, but it's a sign to him, and it grows his faith, and he rejoices on the day when he speaks again and he sees his boy. But what's so cool is as he prophesies and as he praises the Lord, he knows it's not just about, it's not even primarily about his boy. He looks at his son and he recognizes this son has been given to point us to the son. This child is here and will grow up and he will spend his ministry preparing us all for the child, for the one who's been promised, for the one who is to come. And John the Baptist spent his entire ministry telling the people of Israel, get your hearts ready. Get your hearts ready. Turn from your sin and get your heart ready because the one we've all been waiting for is about to come. And so I would say to us this morning as we close, we live at the time where we can say, hey, he has come. He lived. He died. He rose again for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin. He ascended into heaven. And one day, he's going to come again. And we wait. And we wait. Generations and generations. Now, I don't know how long it's going to be. You don't know how long it's going to be. Don't get lost. If I can just a little pastoral encouragement. Don't get lost trying to figure that out, okay? The Bible literally tells us not to, right? You're like, hey, if you flip this verse upside down, read it backwards and send, right? Like, don't do that, right? Hey, it gives us the date. No, it doesn't, right? The Bible literally says, don't try to figure. We don't know. Here's what we know. Until the day he comes, we're to live our lives walking with him, enjoying him, and making disciples. Do you have a relationship with him? Is your heart ready for his return? If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with him, that's the invitation, right? Turn from your sin and trust Jesus with your life, the one who has come and who will come again. And if you love him, live your life in anticipation and in light of his return. Let's pray together. Father, I don't pretend to know everything about what it means to wait on you. It's still something I'm working out in my own life. So often, God, I want to rush ahead. I want to solve the problems. I want to try to force your hand, and that's folly. God, for those who are here this morning who resonate with that, uh, forgive us, help us in our need. Help us in our unbelief and help us to live out the words, I will wait on you. And on your word, I will rely. I put my trust in you, Father. God, for those who are hurting this morning, who are in uh, darker seasons, in seasons of waiting and hopefulness and maybe disappointment and pain, God, I pray that you, the God of all comfort, would comfort them in their affliction, that they might then go and comfort others. None of the pain is wasted. You're a good father and you do not walk us through valley seasons needlessly. 
It is for our good and for your glory. And I pray, God, that knowledge and just the comfort of your spirit would come to those this morning uh, who are in that place. God, I pray for any who are here this morning who uh, have never taken the step to trust you. I pray that they do it now, that they would turn from their sin and they would proclaim you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, the crucified, resurrected Son of God. And Father, may we all as your people live in light of your return to have our hearts ready and to spend our lives in pursuit of you. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen.